You know, there are rules to success, my friend. Rule number one is, know what you know, know what you don't know, and know that I gotta know everything you know as soon as you know it. Sooner. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael. Now, crank it up. Legendary concert promoter Danny Zalisco has a career that spans five decades, which has seen him produce over 10,000 concerts with artists from ACDC to U2 and everyone else in between. You name them, and he has probably worked with them. When he said he has a few stories to tell, he was not kidding. His new book, All Excess, is full of personal photos and stories that, to me, sort of play out like something from a rock and roll Forrest Gump, where Danny is around so many historic artists over the years. It's crazy. This guy really has a rock and roll story to tell. Welcome to the Grown Up Rock Podcast, Danny Zalesko. Good news is I did finally get my head straightened around enough to pick out the right photos and the right stories. And my assistant, I hate to use the word assistant, my girl, I hate to use my girl, my associate. Uh, I'm trying to be as correct as I can be. My helper, my mate, my girl here, her name's Tandra. And she she just did such a beautiful job of placing everything and and making me look really great in there. I mean... Frankly, I got tired of looking at myself and talking about myself throughout the book, but then I'd read it and I'd go, God, that's a great story. And, I, and I'm, I'm like the conduit, you know, between whoever's reading it or I'm telling the story to. It's not really about me. It's about the fact that it happened and I happen to be able to pass along the, the story or the, share it with people. And, and, and I know it's special, you know, I mean, it was, it, they're all special to me. When it happens, so I mean, what's the next best thing to being in the picture yourself is knowing that it happened and you know somebody had fun. So let's start here. What exactly does a concert promoter do for the people that are listening to this podcast? Because it goes, I know that it goes way deeper than just promoting a concert at a local venue. Well, you have to have a building that you can put on a show at, and these days, I mean, in most towns. There are places that certain types of bands play at because their facilities are designed better for a certain type of audience or sounds that come off the stage better than others. Some places can be more vast because the music and the presentation is louder or, or wilder. And then, and then some of the things have more nuances. You go into a nice hall. You've got to know where to place whatever band. It sounds kind of obvious and simple, but think of all the times that you've been surprised about when you hear about a show playing somewhere, and before that second happens where whoever is announcing it, right before they say where it's going to be, you think, you have, well, that's got to be at blank, right? 
Right. And most of the time it is where you expect it to be, but other times it isn't. And the reasons for that are, are many, but one could be the building costs too much to use. It's not available. The, the obvious one isn't available the day that you need. Cause a lot of times with these groups that are touring, they end up being cornered into certain dates that they've got to play just based on available dates in other cities on the way to and from your, your city. So they have to do this in a routed fashion where they're not going backwards or crooked or sideways. They want to go in kind of a straight line from Boston through Chicago to St. Louis to Houston to Albuquerque, you know, towards the West Coast or whatever routing they choose. Mm -hmm. But that's what explains why shows end up on certain days of the week. It isn't because I go out and pick a Monday or Tuesday, believe me. (laughs) You know, everybody wants Saturday night. And the problem is there's seven days in a week and these groups got to work three, four, five, even seven days a week, some groups work. So they've got to do it in a fashion that makes sense for the people traveling. So that's a big thing that figures into how you pick the venue a show goes into, because it depends on, you know, they could also have another play in there for two weeks, or they could have a speaker series, or they could have a hockey game, depending on the size of the venue. So that's first and foremost, you got to get your place together and know where the building uh, is going to be best. And, and then you get into situations like choosing a scaling for the ticket prices, you know, and trying to ascertain ahead of time how many people are going to pay what to see the show. And then you want to keep in mind, you want to try to make it as reasonable as possible and you got to try to determine it. Will this thing sell out? Is this a sellout act or is this somebody who's going to draw a thousand out of 1500 people? Cause if it's only going to draw a thousand out of 1500 people, you might think about tweaking those good ticket prices up higher to make up for those empty seats you're bound to have. See, the thing is you just never know, but for the most part, we kind of do know we have a good idea from other groups who have played the market before in various halls for various ticket prices on various nights of the week at various times of the year. I mean, all that stuff you've got to think about when you're booking a show. Every one of those details is going to end up mattering sooner than later, especially if you missed it when you were planning your show. So once you've done all that, you got to figure out how, you know, the band is going to require X amount of money. We just don't pick a number out of the sky. The bands generally dictate how much they want. And if you agree with that by doing your pro forma and and you guess at what all the costs are going to be to put on that show and how much the tickets are going to be and how many of them are going to sell, you figure out whether or not you've got a, a possible winning or losing event in front of you. And then the only way to find out is to roll the dice, announce the show, buy your advertising, put it on sale, be in touch with the box office every day or at least and promote the hell out of the show as best you can and and do all the things necessary to make sure everybody knows about your event until you've sold your last ticket. You know, you don't have to sell every last ticket to, to be profitable in this business, but in many cases you do. There's a lot of the big bands on the road right now. i I know there's a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings out there about a lot of great, big, cool bands out there. 
But let me tell you something. They all got these wonderful mercenaries working for them, trying to make sure that their group is getting every last cent guaranteed to them for their efforts. It's a hard life. It's it's incredibly difficult to be good, much less popular. But if you're that good, you can command all that stuff. And if you're not all that good, you know, or, or as big <laughs> as you think, somebody's liable to say, hey, I want 50 grand for my band for, for that night. And I might say, I got 20 grand. Forget it. I'm not going to do it. I'll go somewhere else. And I'll say, go right ahead. Right. Because I'm not going to, I don't agree with you for how much you think your band is worth. How about this? What did you say you wanted 50 grand? How about I give you the first 60 grand after I pay for my bills to put on the show and you take the next 60 grand and then we go back to a regular deal. That way you make more money because you're that big. You're so big that you're not going to play for me for 40 grand or 20 grand. You got to have 50. Well, that's when you put on the big boy pants on both sides of the table or the conversation and somebody blinks or somebody doesn't. And, and if they don't blink, then you hang up, say good knowing you, hope you do well. And, and they're on their own to go find another date. And these are all conversations you're having with booking agents, right? It's a typical conversation. Yeah. You go into detail in your book and lay out many of the steps that you took to get to where this ride took you. One thing in particular, you said at 19, which is pretty damn young, Bill Graham, who you had made contact with and networked with earlier, offers you a gig in Denver promoting concerts for him, which did not pay you all that much. In fact, uh, it was barely survivable. You didn't end up taking that gig. But my question to you would be, would the learning experience help you grow your career quicker when you were at that age? Would you have learned more quicker? And then looking back on that, do you regret not actually taking that gig way back then? I guess I would regret it if I had failed at what I chose to do. Right. But since I didn't, <laughs> no. You don't regret it. Doesn't it? Hell no. It okay. doesn't phase me because I, as much as I, I could have learned from doing that, I, I would have been thrown into the fire of being in a town that I wasn't familiar with and doing a job that somebody else was doing or supposed to be doing. And um, at, at that young of an age, I'm not quite sure that I would have been prepared to handle all that. Right. Yeah, that's fair enough. I think that's the flip side of the coin. The other thing was I, I had just gotten the money that wasn't even enough. I should have gotten a lot more money, but that's how naive I was, was that I accepted this money from my dad and my friend to try to make a go out of this. And, you know, the truth is, is it, it just wasn't enough money because I couldn't uh, live and and do this job and concentrate and focus on this gig without having to have a side job of cleaning buildings. Right. You know, you could say, one could say, well, would you change anything? I wouldn't have minded not doing the building cleaning part. I still would have been good at this, and I still would have made it happen. But the fact is, you got to eat. Yeah. So you, you got to pay your rent and, and stuff like that. I had a very hard time then. And, you know, it, 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 while I did have some fun and some very, very big moments, the day after my first show, I, you know, I would, 
I was uh, having half of a Whataburger and saving the other half for the next day. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the story of a pretty much almost anybody who's ever become anybody. I mean, that's exactly true. So, so the thing is, when you do get somewhere, and I, I've been asked this before, um, you know, was there a part of me that would have loved to have taken that job? Yes, absolutely, of course. But at four hundred dollars, a hundred dollars a week even in 1974, was not a lot of money. Right. 400 a month, not a week. 400 a week was good money. Right. Back then, I mean, because actually that was a little late. Yeah, it was 74. You needed at least a couple hundred dollars a week, at least. And that wasn't even that much. It doesn't sound like anything now, but back then, it was a fair amount of money, you know, that, that one could live on. You know, and at that time, Having just started, I, I didn't, I didn't have any dreams or thoughts of making a fortune at doing this or even having a career at it because I didn't know what a career was. I was 19. Right. So, I, I mean, I'd only had a few years of adult living. So, I mean, I did get some experience in those first shows and learned a lot. I knew, knew a lot more following the, the first shows that I did than I did beforehand, of course. And I could speak with some authority when, when I even went on the, this job interview at, at the nightclub that ended up hiring me for $80 a week. I, I mean, it, it took everything I had to get that. I was very happy I got it. It was a great break. That changed my life right there, that part. That's what really was one of the first instigators of, of, of the next step part of, of life where you actually are getting paid to do what you want to do. Yeah. Um, and, and I found it was a, it was a very very difficult difficult thing to do. I mean, it was just to get in with somebody who believes in you enough to do a job and then back you and invest with you, even though you don't have that extensive of a background. Right. So it was the gift of BS and 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 some tenacity and and also loving the music and the artists that made it. And, and you know, like you said, I mean that that can happen. With anybody in any gig or any any interest, any walk of life, it just requires not being held back or or, or not allowing yourself to get down and go. Well, how can I do this? They won't give me a chance. Well, you you got to make the chance. You got to create the chance. Nobody's going to hand it to you. They never have and they never will. Because all you're going to do is come in there, and make it harder for somebody else to do it or make money. You know, and and they're going to protect their ground just the same way. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we say on this show, everybody's got a rock and roll story to tell, and you've certainly got a lot of these stories. Uh, in your book, All Excess, you share some pretty amazing stories that aren't all centered around you as a promoter. Yes, there are many stories from that time period, but the adventure to getting to the point that you ended up at, it seems to me like almost destiny. Can you share the story of what I think was one of your very first gigs in the backstage world as security for Alice Cooper? You witnessed an all-out brawl between Bill Graham and Shep Gordon, Alice Cooper's manager. Can you share that story with the listeners? Yeah. Um, what had happened was Tucson's about two hours from Phoenix, and I was going going down to Tucson for uh, for a show. It was, um, Deep Purple and Fleetwood Mac and Rory Gallagher, I think, Wow, was the show. And the week before I was going down on my motorcycle, I had a, a, a Honda 350. I was going to go down 
for the show there, and I had an accident on my bike the week before. So the next week, I still I wanted to go to this concert, and and my bike broke down on the way down there. So I had to hide it under some bushes and hitchhike. And I got picked up by these two guys right out of deliverance. It was unbelievable. And they, they were nice, turned out to be nice guys, but they had about three teeth between them. They dropped me off at the hall and I met my friends and I went to the show and I had a great time. And, and, and then I found out that Alice Cooper was going to come to town in, in, in about two weeks after that. So I was driving down the street in Phoenix one day and my brother's $80 spray painted yellow Valiant and three on the tree and 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 i'm driving down the road and there's this hit, uh, hippie guy hitchhiking on the side of the road and i picked him up he didn't have any shoes on it was really hot out he asked if i could take him into tempe which is where i was headed uh and he could get some moccasins or some sandals or something we got to talking and it turned out that he uh, was the production designer for the alice cooper billion dollar baby store which was opening in a few days in Tucson. <laughs> see, see, this is what I'm saying. This, this kind of <laughs> shit doesn't happen to everybody. This is shit of destiny. Like who, who does this shit? Maybe it's, maybe it's the seventies. It's different. It's you know? also, it's also a lot of that right time, right place stuff that you cannot predict or put yourself in the middle of, but it's like, there's that other expression where great minds think alike. So somehow me and this guy were drawn together at the same time, on the same street. So I get your point, and there is a certain amount of credibility to that. Anyway, he asked me if I wanted to, maybe he could find me a gig at the show. And he was so grateful for me picking him up. So, you know, we exchanged uh, phone numbers, and I went down there and, and uh, went down there the night before. I remember it was a huge party at some nightclub, and everybody was there. Alice didn't come, but everybody else came from the tour, and Flo and Eddie were there. They were opening the show, and I was I was just thrilled with the whole thing. The next day, I walked into the building in the afternoon, and uh, I was walking down the hall, and there's no signs on any doors. I, I, I was pretty sure I was in the right place. And I walked into a locker room, and there's Alice sitting there with his legs up on the couch, and he's he's drinking a beer. <laughs> And he, he and I said, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to come in. He goes, no, come on in, you know, just like Wayne's World. Yeah. And I sat there and we drank a case of beer. <laughs> not a bottle, not a couple bottles, but a case. And his manager walks in, shop, and he goes, who the hell are you? Alice goes, my old friend Danny. He goes, how long have you known him? Five minutes? He goes, yeah, ten. And uh, he goes, oh, great. He goes, what are you doing here? I said, I'm a security guy. And he goes, oh, perfect. I'm going to have a drunk guy in the front who who couldn't stop anything. Anyway, he goes, what do you weigh, 130? And I said, something like that. Of course, I don't weigh 130 anymore. And uh, I ended up doing security in front of the stage. And uh, I thought I was doing a good job of it until Bill Graham comes over and he goes, listen, Alice is going to get his head cut off. And when he does, all these people in the front, they're going to rush the stage and they're going to freak out. And they're going to, if you don't jump on the other side of the barricade and stick your feet out, that barricade's going to crush you into the stage. So I said, okay. And I followed his advice and exactly what he said happened. And there we are with our backs to the stage and our legs straight out in front of us, about six of us, holding back a couple thousand people that are trying to get to the stage. And this giant guy, he had a big old one of those turquoise bracelets and he had dropped it and it was right 
out of my reach, beneath my legs that are no longer on the ground. And he's yelling at me to pick it up from, I go, I will, I will, but let, you know, I can't do, I can't move or I'll get crushed. And he reaches over and he rips a scab off my arm from the motorcycle the week before. Uh, and it just blood everywhere. And I popped him one right in the nose. I think I broke his nose. He kind of disappeared after I did that, but I gave him a good pop. You know, just was a reaction for doing it. There was no reason for him to do that. I told him I wasn't going to get it. Yeah. Anyway, they pulled me out of there and they took me around the corner of the nurse's station to to patch me up because I was bleeding everywhere and they couldn't have a security guard in front of the stage bleeding. And, and Alice was getting a real kick out of this. He's over, he's standing over me seeing all this take place and he's sprinkling Alice Cooper money over my head. So people are jumping at me and, and he was just, he, and he's singing. I'm 18 on top of it, which I was at the time I was 18. And, um, then uh, as I was getting taken back to the nurse, I got knocked over, two of us did, because Bill and Shep were trying to kill each other backstage. <laughs> they were landing haymakers. I mean, no boxing was going on. It was sheer, I'm going to kill you type of uh, tactics. They went down the hallway. They got One of them got thrown through the heavy dressing room door and into that room I was in with Alice. And they came out and they had beer and mustard and booze and shit all over them because they broke up every table in the room and they laid in it and they were pounded in it and, and they pretty much destroyed the place. I, I've never ever seen anything quite like it. And at the very end, they said their parting words to each other and Shep turns to me and he winks at me and smiles and walks away. I just like, God, the balls on these guys. I mean, it was just nuts. And it turned out the reason that they got in the fight was that Bill was unpleasant to Alice's dad, uh, who didn't wasn't wearing his pass. And Bill didn't know Alice's dad. He's a very nice guy. He threw him out of backstage. You know, he didn't hurt him or anything. But Shep find out about it. He goes, what are you doing throwing Alice's dad? He goes, tell him to wear a pass. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> wow. So uh, Shep, Shep loves that story. And, and uh, you know, sometimes he tells it. And other times, like, he'll be with a bunch of people who'll say, He'll call me up at grade and he goes, "Tell the story," <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll even get more grand and you know try to make up as much as I can to even dress it up even better. But that's what happened, yeah. and uh, it was just one of those things that I, I went, "Well, God, this is for me. I got to do this." So, so I, I talked with Bill and another one of his people after the show, and they said, "Well, um, look, we've got." Uh, they liked me, I think. They said we got Led Zeppelin coming up to Kizar Stadium on June 2nd. You could come up and work that show if you like. I said, fine. So, and, and, and as, what I found out as time went on through doing so many shows is that it might not seem possible, but it is necessary that you have various qualified, reasonable people in every job that has to do with putting on the show, which could be a runner, which is an assistant mm -hmm. who would go and get things. They used to call them gophers. They don't call them that anymore so much. Anyway, so uh, they got me to come all the way up to San Francisco for the show. I was going to make, I forget how much an hour, but it, I think it was 4 or $5 an hour. Yeah, but I, was, I had reported 5 a.m. in San Francisco in June, maybe 40 degrees out when I got there. Yep. And uh, they told me to go line every garbage can on the field with the trash liners. <laughs> that was my job at five in the morning. 
those were some character builders. But the fun part of that day was Jimmy Page decided he wasn't going to fly with the band on their private chartered plane. He decided he was going to fly with the people. He took, I think it was Hughes Air West at the time, and he flew on a regular plane to San Francisco from L.A., causing him to be hours late for the show with 60,000 people waiting for him to perform. So they asked, or I heard there's some commotion going on. I go, they didn't have anybody to play music to placate the people in the field while they were waiting. And uh, I overheard it and I said, I, I can take care of that for you. So they gave me like 12 or 13 eight tracks. <laughs> and, and there was a show coat tower in the middle of the field. I uh, went in different order for good two to two and a half hours with these tapes. And, and along the way, some, some fans also had some tapes in the audience. They shared them with me if I gave them back to them so I could play some different music. But it sure was fun. I mean, I had that place rocking. Yeah. That was an, a very, a very interesting day. And I mean, so one minute, you know, you're, you're, you're on top of the world, literally on a 60 foot tower playing music for 60,000 people. And later that night, I was on a $10 mail flight a midnight mail flight from San Francisco to LA. I got to LA and there's not a plane for six hours. I sleep in the airport. I go to the counter and I find that in the morning, it's six in the morning when the guy opens, I'm $3 short on my plane ticket to get back to Phoenix. So I have to take a cab and pay seven bucks to get to the freeway entrance to hitchhike down to San Diego to borrow some money from my friend's mother who gave me a lecture along with it that I didn't need just to get back to Phoenix. So, I mean, it's like one day you're rocking and you've got it all going on. And the next minute you're just another bum. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the way it is. That's the life of a vagabond. <laughs> well, and I had a capital V on my head. Rock and roll gypsy, so to speak. It was that kind of stuff that enamored me so much. I mean, despite, you know, being broke sometimes and all, most of the time and, and not really having a lot of good food to eat or restaurants. I didn't know what that word meant for years. Yeah. And finally, uh, when I, I got picked up some years after that with the, uh, the Dooley's nightclub thing. And, and, and that was my first regular money in the business. And I became the ad agency for their shows. So I made reasonable money. In fact, I was making good money, like 300, 400 a week. And, uh, that was 76, 77, at that point, they told me they didn't want to take a risk on shows anymore. No, Most people don't have the stomach for it. It's a difficult thing. So they said, we'll spot you some money and, and you take the risk on the shows. We don't want the risk on the shows anymore. That was uh, 77, 78. And, and from that point forward, I, uh, I, I never really had anybody back me anymore. It was just me after that. Right. So it was all about, you know, putting up the money and, and uh, hoping it's a gamble, so to speak. You put up the money and you hope that the band pays off and brings in enough people to not only pay the band, but also make yourself some money, right? Correct. And again, it's whatever it is that you're selling in any business, that's, that's the name of the game is having something that people want and, yeah. charging them to be around it or enjoy it uh, on a reasonable enough level where it's fair for everybody and everybody has a good time. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. 
So I'd long since heard that James Brown, Chuck Berry, and Whitney Houston were all very tough artists to deal with from various people in both the concert industry and also the record industry. I've got a lot of friends on both sides. You had your own encounters with some of those trials and tribulations. Can you share some of those stories with us? Sure. You know, keep in mind, all three of them are arguably three of the biggest entertainers of their generations. Yep. And in all three cases, there's the stigma of, of being an African-American that some people get affected, even though it would seem that people who are gods like this would be above it. And the fact is, nobody was above it. And it's a shame that it exists, but it happened with all these people. And I would say, uh, especially in Chuck and James's case, we have no idea what they went through in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, a lot of people took advantage of them for sure. And uh, they, you know, they went through all the whole racial equality and everything else. So no doubt about that. They were also very strong personalities, very talented, groundbreaking people, and paved the way for a lot of others, uh, from musicians from all over the world, and, and influenced them. And, and Whitney did the same thing as well with her style and her incredible talent. I looked forward to seeing James every time I did him. I was one of the few people that James actually liked that appeared. We had some extremely fun exchanges. He could also be a brat and extremely challenging. Chuck Berry could just be downright mean or downright sweet. I've heard all kinds of stories, too. Fortunately, uh, I mine wasn't anything compared to what I heard he did with other people where he demand money at the last minute, extra money to go play and just hold people up. Literally, he never did that to me. In fact, I was one of the first people to say to his uh, agent, let's just pay him in advance completely a hundred percent. Cause he'd always show up and play. He'd never just take your money and, and run, but you know, he'd show up and sometimes he'd ask for more money and, and he could be squirrely sometimes. So, uh, the next times I did him after the first time I did him, I insisted on paying him up front so there was no conversation whatsoever about money to take place at all. And, and there never was, but it fixed everything for me. Um, James said, it, you know, by the time I started doing James, which was late 70s, his glory days were pretty much over. Uh, and he was as big as they got. And, you know, he owned stores and planes and radio stations. He was one of the highest rolling brothers in the music business there for many years, but by the late seventies, early eighties, you know, a lot of disco had come in mm -hmm. disco. Think about disco screwed with James Brown, like the same way that the Beatles screwed with the four seasons, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all, and all the doo-wop acts and everybody that just were wiped out by the British invasion. You know, there's this evolution that takes place in, the, in music. And this was yet another one of those type of things. So, so James was bitter that he wasn't, as big as he was, having gone through the whole black and white thing and, and the whole, you know, coming from rags to riches and, and becoming a huge, huge star and a cultural force and everything. And, and then suddenly he's not as big anymore. So here I am. I, I was doing him at this. I'd already done him a couple of times in clubs. So he didn't make that much money. So he came to the celebrity theater and I was paying him $4,000, about nineteen. 82 and he came in screaming that he wasn't going to play for no four grand james brown don't play for that kind of money for nobody <laughs> blah 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 
And I said, James, we sold a thousand tickets and tickets are like eight bucks, right? Yeah. I'm losing money on this show. You might be doing me a favor if you were just to cancel it right now, because then I wouldn't have to pay you even that money <laughs> and I could send everybody home, you know, and I'll just eat my advertising. He goes, well, who said anything about canceling? I said, well, you just told me you ain't playing. You know, so, I mean, you, you don't understand, James. You haven't sold the tickets. I advertised. Here's proof. You know, I mean, they just ain't coming tonight. And it's a hard thing for a guy with that kind of pride, you know, to swallow. Right. So we ended up playing, and, and we had many more adventures. There's another time I was with him, and some guy got shot. And <laughs> Reverend Al Sharpton was his was his road manager. I don't know if you knew that or not. No, I didn't. Reverend Al, the MSNBC commentator of the month. He was my good buddy and James Brown's road manager. So what a pair these two guys were. <laughs> oh my God. I, I, I would, you know, I haven't seen Alan probably two dozen years or so. I was in New York and I happened to be at a place where he was at doing some press conference and he saw me and he kind of gave me the look like, don't blow it. <laughs> don't tell him about me. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have loved to, but I didn't, you know, that, that's the whole thing. I mean, see where in this book where I had the opportunity to blow the lid off of a few things that I didn't, right. I didn't want it to be that kind of a book grinding, you know, grinding out any kind of old vendettas or I, I really don't have that many to grind out by the way, but there's, there's absolutely some people who, you know, could easily look great underneath the bus. <laughs> um, and, then, and I chose, I, I chose not to go there because they could probably, or some of them could do the same thing to me when you're, when you're out and you're doing things and you're working and you're playing hard and, and it's during whatever time of a century it is with God knows who you're with and how they may influence you good or bad at whatever time of the day or night it is or morning, you know, uh, a lot of that stuff goes better left unsaid and, and left in your mind and. Uh, you know, to revisit with that person someday down the road. But uh, I, I wrote a lot of stuff down that I that I didn't want to include in there because it it would just either seem like airing dirty laundry or just saying things just too fantastic. And these people are still alive and they got kids. <laughs> right. So, so you, you know, you don't want to blow it for anybody just for the sake of oh, I was there and I'm telling this. Yeah. I I really was careful. I hope in in selecting the right types of people and, and the right stories. Whitney Houston was like, I was so flabbergasted by her as a talent. I just loved her and, and she was beautiful and what a talent. And one night she made me go chase Mike Tyson off the stage. And, um, I was scared. I mean, I was, I was kind of scared for a lot of reasons. I didn't want to be thrown off the stage by Mike Tyson. It was when the lights were on between acts and Whitney was going on and she told me, get him off my stage or I'm not singing. Right. And, and I got 10, 12,000 people in Las Vegas. This is her first giant show, you know, cause up until then she, she was moving up and this is when she was really starting to hit her stride as a superstar, you know, like instant type sellout shows in arenas everywhere. And I, I had to go ask Mike to get off the stage. He was very nice about it. And uh, later on, he threatened to kill me, but he was laughing when he said it. Um, and, and he could have. He, and he, anyway, I, it, it was quite a moment. 
<laughs> There's a great picture of a young Danny Zalisco, and I think that this is the cover of the book, if I'm not mistaken. But you're on the floor with a box of cash after a show in 88 with Pink Floyd. What was that all about? I was approached by uh, by my head of security, John Reese, and he said, um, as I recall, he said, give me, give me 10 grand in cash. I'm going to make you some money. I said, what are you going to do? I don't know what I thought he was going to do, but he says, I'm going to go rent all the parking lots around the stadium. He goes, that stadium only has parking for however many people can sit in there for a ball game. And it's the old Phoenix stadium. And, and, uh, it holds about 7,500 people for a baseball game. And all they have are those, you know, minor league ballpark, lower uh, stands and some box seats, but there's only not even 8,000 seats there. So you go and you put, you go and you put um, a stage in center field up against the back of center field, and you can put on a baseball field about 10,000 chairs. Mm-hmm. So that brings you up to um, 18,000. And then we brought in some bleachers from another state, and, and I added 2,000 more people on each side. So now I had 22,000 people. And so if I sell all those tickets, I can pay Pink Floyd and make myself a profit. Well, in the meantime, and I added a second show, which was a questionable decision. At the end, it came through, but I sweated bullets on that. But in the meantime, what I had as my backdrop was John brought over these cassette boxes full of cash, and we organized all the cash. We came up with over forty grand for parking for Pink Floyd. I made more off of the parking than I did on a concert. Thank God for that parking. Wow, really? Yeah, it was a beautiful thing, and and that's that's why that face is there, and that's why that picture's on the cover of the book. <laughs> Holy cow! As a promoter, one of the things that you're responsible for is the artist writer. Now we all know about the famous Van Halen, No Brown M and M's legend. I'm guessing you've seen some pretty ridiculous requests over the years. Can you share some of the craziest requests you've gotten on artist writers? Well, the, the funny thing is how, how that Van Halen thing still comes up because I, I don't think ever anybody ever in the history of music ever listened to the answer of why they did that. I know why. I'm pretty sure it's common knowledge nowadays, but you're right. A lot of people don't understand the actual legend. So, yeah, go ahead. Explain it. Well, they, their manager wanted to make sure people were reading the writer. Mm-hmm. So that document, which can go anywhere from a page to 100 pages, I mean, there, you got some people that have serious lawyers behind them, and they're going to write something down to protect their act from any possible thing happening. And, of course, they can't plan everything, so it's silly to try to take those kind of measures in advance when in 99 and a half times out of 100, everything goes off without a hitch anyway. But I guess it's nice people feel comfortable having that stuff in place. But that artist writer would dictate what the food that they want you to have there for them. You know, the catering part of shows used to be something that we did as a favor. We did something nice. Hey, you guys are on the road. How about we get you a home-cooked meal? You know, instead of you guys having to stop on the side of the road and have a, you know, a greasy flat cheeseburger or something like that. Uh, we can feed you good when you get here and try to make it as nice as possible. Mm-hmm. That's how catering started. And then it turned into this list of demands. And then it mellowed out into it's just part of the business and it's what we do. 
but frankly, you know, when, when are these crews and people who are setting up shows for you all day, when are they going to eat? So the thing is, is on some artist rider, what will happen is in advance, I have to write as a line item down when I'm trying to figure out how much the show's going to cost me, how much am I going to put in there for catering? So for most normal shows, for a couple thousand dollars, you can feed a small army of 40 people breakfast, lunch, and dinner and put some stuff in their dressing rooms, and it's all pretty normal. I know it sounds like a lot, but think of how many people I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about a couple people. But then sometimes they'll send along these riders, and in the catering portion of it, they could have six bottles of wine that cost $300 a piece. Mm -hmm. They could have a big booze rider. That's mainly the ones that get your certain types of, of liquor or wine. And you just call them back and say, look, I only got this budget for catering and you guys accepted my budget. We got to stay within that budget somehow. And most of the time, they're fine with that. Sometimes you'll get people say, screw you, I want it anyway. The thing is, is if the show's doing great and somebody wants an extra thousand dollars worth of booze for whatever reason, and the show's doing great, it, it gets absorbed into the show as an expense. And and when you're done adding up all the expenses and you make, hopefully you make some money before the artist makes any more, you find yourself having to share it with the other artists. Uh, excuse me. You have to share that money with the artist and they make the lion's share of it. You make very little, even though you're at risk and you're the host, you're not only providing them all these catering things, but on those riders, it says how many stagehands and how the security is going to go and, Every last detail that affects them, they write about in those riders. And the thing is, is that over the years, the business has somewhat evened out, leveled out, gotten a little fair in that regard, where it's kind of unacceptable and unheard of anymore for somebody out of nowhere to give you an exaggerated demand list yeah. because it's just not a responsible way of doing business. Very few people do it like that anymore. But, you know, over the years, and, and also keep in mind this, which they don't point out, if the show does well, and it should do well, especially if you're some kind of an, an eccentric person demanding, Prince wanted uh, the, these roses from Denmark. <laughs> and I'm talking about a few hundred dozen, <laughs> 10,000 in flowers. 10,000 bucks? In flowers. Shit. But you see, Prince is going to make 90% of the ticket sales after my expenses, okay? Yeah. It's his money. Yeah. So if I got to pay 10%, which is what it's cost me, of that $10,000 bill, I don't care if he's buying gold yeah. or anything. You pick anything silly out. I don't care what he's buying with that ten grand. It's just something he needs to make him comfortable. Yeah. while he's at my show that he's doing for me and that's going to cost me an extra grand. I wish he was here so I could do it again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the, the thing is where these things that they request uh, and, and even demand, and it, like I said, not happening so much anymore, but it's still extraordinarily expensive. I mean, you get into doing an arena show with any of the acts that you go see, the Foo Fighters, Fleetwood Mac, you name it. Just for catering for shows, it can go as high as 20 grand. And it's not like they're sitting there eating all the food. It's just they have huge crews mm -hmm. and they're charging big ticket prices 
and they're making a lot of money and people are happy to pay the tickets to go see their favorite stars. So this is their way of making sure everybody's happy on the road, which is basically other than the fact you're flying in nice planes and driving in beautiful coaches, it's hell. It's hard for anyone to do nothing but travel and be on the road and live out of a bunk and a bus or on a suitcase in a hotel. It's a rough gig, you know, and it's not for everybody. But the fact is, if you're lucky and great enough and fortunate enough to write a hit song and people want to see you, well, I don't think you're going to hear anybody putting out the violin section for these people either, are you? No, I've I've heard stories of people asking for stuff like uh, packages of underwear and packages of socks because oh, yeah. they don't want to yeah. wash clothes. They just want to get new yeah. ones at each no, gig. I, I don't mind that. The thing, you know, the stuff that I that I never liked getting for people were condoms or cigarettes. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're going to get laid, take care of it yourself. At least show your prospective partner a little respect. And act like you care. Take care of yourself. Don't let the promoter do that for you. Right. And, and the cigarettes, it's like, you know, if you're going to kill yourself, you're doing it on your own. I'm not helping you. Yeah. I, I never liked buying those. But like if they said, we'd, we'd like a copy of all the morning papers. And, and we'd like to know. Robin Williams used to call ahead and ask about what's going on in town. And so he could make up some jokes and be topical in the middle of the show. A number of people have done that over years mm-hmm. where... That's why, you know, they'll get the papers or they'll ask for any funny news stories that are going on. They want to know about them. Uh, a, a number of comedians do that because it just it gives them so much connection with the audience for them to come in and be knowledgeable about somebody's audience. You know, yeah, the best one. I can't remember the name of the band it was an opening band and, and it should have made me remember their name. But they asked for a petting zoo. <laughs> 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 nice and 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 i i circled it on the rider and i signed it and i sent back glowing reviews on the rider i said i hope these guys are as good as their humor uh because this is one of the best things i've ever seen and i i think i i posted it and printed it and shared it and all that because i was so so impressed with that particular request yeah i think it's in the book uh yeah, so, yeah. i love it so, I love it. That's great. You don't have to give us numbers, but do you happen to remember your biggest take from a show money-wise? Well, I remember, yeah, I remember I remember some pretty big shows. The Stones was huge. The Grateful Dead was huge. Um, Pink was huge. Paul McCartney. So those all made big money for you? Big, big dough. But, yeah. you know, I mean, there, there's so few and far between for me yeah. Anymore. Back back in the nineties, um, though, when prior to me selling my company, I mean, we were. I mean, these were with way more normal ticket prices. Uh, they weren't eight bucks or nothing, but they right. they were starting to climb up. But when we did the Dead in nineteen ninety five, I think their show was. I want to say it was thirty five or forty dollars general admission. Sure. You know, whereas now their their tickets would be you know for the good ones they'd be five hundred or a thousand down mm-hmm. in front and you know, a lot more. So, I mean, the groups are making a lot more money now than, than they used to. And I guess that's good. You know, unfortunately it's at somebody's expense, the ticket buyers, but the bottom line is if you want these people out there, that's, that's called paying the freight. It is not easy what these people do. And, and, and the fact that they get to go out and play their music in front of people and have people show them that adoration at the end of the song or at a particularly 
good spot of the show or whatever, that makes it all worthwhile for them. And that's what makes them get up and, and do it the next day. I guarantee you it isn't the money. It's certainly a driving force in it. But if these people didn't enjoy what they were doing, they wouldn't be there. So I agree with you. I think that artists should make money and I think promoters should make money as well. I think it should be a well-rounded thing. My issue and a lot of the average concert goers issues come in when nowadays it's kind of a monopoly going on and those ticket prices are ridiculous like crazy. And on top of it all, is the fees and the ticket master and all this other stuff that's just like it's out of control. I would love to get your thoughts on a few things, if that's all right. Back in the day, you tell a story in your book of the Grateful Dead having their fans tape their shows. Uh, and this was a big deal back then because the record companies hated it because they felt it was taken away from record sales and in a way, I think this was kind of an early test that to me was successful. Get artist music in the ears and hands of as many people as possible and create fandom so that they buy concert tickets and merchandise. What are your thoughts on the state of the music business today? The bottom line is not any one group in particular created the inflationary ticket prices I mean, where it really blew open was in the early 90s when Barbara Streisand opened the MGM Grand, and they had tickets down in front for $2,500. This was the first time she'd been doing live performances in years. She had developed or always had a real wicked stage fright situation. People joked that it was the money, but somehow she managed to overcome that. And when people saw that people would pay that kind of money for a ticket, it, it kind of overnight changed a lot of opinions about what you're going to be paying to see somebody or paying to give a, a guarantee to somebody to come and perform. Keep in mind, as a promoter, the more that you charge a ticket price for somebody, the more they're going to want to get paid. Nobody's going to say, all right, go and create a million dollar gross and I'm going to play for 50 grand and you get to keep the rest. That ain't the way it works. Right. What's going to happen is whatever you guarantee them, plus all the costs of putting on the show are going to be added up, and the artist is going to end up making anywhere from 60 to 90% of what's left over. So the bottom line is you always want to be mindful of those ticket prices and, and not charge more than what people are going to be willing to pay. And the way that you know that whether or not they're going to be willing to pay it is based on similar type of artists in the same hall who have done what kind of business based on what kind of ticket prices. These are all the things that you got to put through your head before you do, you know, any particular show. So in my mind, you know, I mean, it's up to each artist how they want to show their fans. Thanks for coming out to see them. I honestly don't understand in a lot of cases why people have to charge so much. But where it's driven by is the, the secondary ticketing market, which is horrible because these people can take and buy those tickets as an investment and go and resell it for any price they want. Well, why is that a problem? It's a problem because the artist isn't making any of that money for that great seat that somebody just bought off of somebody else 
for $2,500 when the face value of it was 100 So why charge $100 when you're not going to share in the rest of it? Why not charge a grand? Why not charge 500 mm-hmm. Whatever they're charging. Mm-hmm. And that's their way of combating that because it's been fully proven that no matter what you put on the face value of a ticket, somebody somehow is going to get their grubby little paws on it and they're going to resell it to somebody who's got a lot of money and not a lot of things to do with that money. So they want to sit in the front and that's how it happens. Who should be in the front? The people who are truly the fans, the ones that saw them in the sweaty little club show way back when, when 50 people showed up, or maybe when you you got punched out in the bar because you looked at somebody else's girlfriend and there was 30 people at the show. And you know what I mean? It's like those people should be down in front, but you know, there's certain things in life that just aren't fair sometimes. And this is one of them, but this is why you see the ticket prices so explosive many times is because you don't realize it. Like if I, if I go and charge 50 bucks for all the tickets on the main floor of an arena, you're not going to see this, but they're going to gobble up all of those tickets and they're going to have them on their websites before they've even picked them up from the box office for 10 times that amount. And the group's going, why don't I get that money? In the meantime, remember this too. And this is very important. The groups are already missing such a great portion of their income or potential income with the demise of the record business. And the fact that people, fans, the people that claim to love these bands, steal their music. How do they steal their music? Well, they tape them and rip them off of YouTube. You know, I mean, you can get almost any music you want at no cost. And you'll download it and you'll listen to it and you'll enjoy it. But keep in mind, just 20 years ago, the bands were selling those albums for 10, 12, 15 bucks and they would make a few dollars a record for doing that. And if they sold a million records, there'd be a lot of money there. But now everybody downloads them. They pay their 99 cents or whatever people charge for a whole album these days. And I don't know how it got this way. I don't know how it works this way, how they don't get paid more money for a download because you're not even getting the album cover. You're not getting the the case for it. If it's a CD, you're not getting the, the, the printed material with the words that the albums used to come with, you're getting an electronic signal. And, and that's what you're paying the same amount you used to pay for an actual physical disc. I, for the life of me, I don't know why people didn't want to have discs anymore and, and carry their music around and be able to share it with people by handing it to them. Again, the sense of community, that's where it's at. You know, having somebody over, hey, come over and listen to this record with me tonight. The only way you're going to get to do that is if you physically come to my house so I can play it for you because you don't have the record. Nowadays, well, I can just send it to you by email and you'll have it. Listen to it by yourself when you feel like it. You know, it's just different. And uh, obviously you can tell I'm, I'm not a real fan of the way that this all became. But bottom line, what happened is the only real place, unless you're one of these guys who, who wrote such popular songs, they use them on Cadillac commercials or like a rock or whatever like that. I mean, those people made fortunes off of those songs from their publishing and songwriting, you know, which is another arm of the business that people, you know, can still make some money at if you happen to be the writer. But they lost all the income they used to get from record sales. They get very, very little from that, and they make it up by touring, and they tour more often in some cases, or they charge more for their tickets because they're not going to tour that often, and it's 
by caviar. You just got to adjust your thinking into going at the end of the day, before you hit okay on that ticket purchase, it's going to end up showing you whatever those charges are. And maybe it starts out, you know, it's like a Legion airline. Do you ever take a Legion airlines? No. They claim they're this low cost airfare thing. I was looking into flying to Illinois a couple of weeks ago and it was $156 each. So that would be $312. When I was done, it was $852. Because of baggage fees and stuff? They charge you for breathing on that airline. <laughs> it's very it's very convenient because it goes from here in Mesa, which is a smaller airport here in Phoenix, yeah. and it goes to the secondary tertiary markets. Like if It'll fly directly to uh, Whitefish Bay, Montana, for example, I yeah. mean, which is wonderful. It'll fly to Rockford, Illinois. So I was checking Rockford. But what they do is they charge you extra money for being able to select your own seat yep. and some taxes yep. and, and baggage fees. Yeah, it's like Spirit Airlines, same thing. So it's basically, all right, do you want to just show me that it's $420 a ticket? Or, you know, because all you did by showing me 156 a ticket was piss me off, you know. <laughs> and I found I found another way to do it because I just don't like them being sneaky. Now, with, with concert tickets, I, I mean, I, I bitch about it sometimes, too, and I get it. Ticket companies are there. We're constantly uh, on the lookout or, or we are often pitched, I should say, other new ticketing platforms to use that are just as good as other ones, and they don't charge as much for the fees and so on and so forth. So we're constantly shopping, things like that. But the bottom line is you really just got to get into your head that when you're about to check out on a ticket, yeah, the ticket just cost you X amount a piece. It didn't cost you what you started out at. But keep in mind this. If a ticket say 50 bucks, that's what the artist is settling on. He's not settling on all those other fees. Those are outside of that which is why a lot of that happens, because otherwise the artists would take that money too. In fact, is they're probably deserving of some of it because they're generating it. I paid 25 bucks for a club show uh, whenever, you know, when we used to go to shows. Yeah. I paid 25 bucks for a club show, and the service fee, the ticket fees to get the ticket were 15 bucks. Yeah, so, you're at 40 bucks. Yeah, so you're at 40 bucks. So, so the ticket was 25. I paid over half of what I paid for the ticket for service fees. You talk about piss you off. Boy, that's what pisses me off. But you know what? Here's the thing. Instead of getting pissed off about that, take a breath. Is this group worth 40 bucks? Yes or no? That's the ticket price. It's not 25 bucks. Mm -hmm. It's 40 bucks. Are you going to enjoy this for 40 bucks? Is 15 bucks going to get in between you and that show? And if the answer is yes, you didn't need to go. I wish they would just say your ticket is 40 bucks and, and I yeah, never see the service fee. I think it's the music business's way of explaining to you that we're, you know, we're very similar to rental cars and hotels. Those are the first two things that really come to mind. I mean, when you go and you, I got to go stay at a hotel and it's, $200 for a room and you get out of there and it's 260. Yeah. It's just the way it is, man. And you know, I guess we never get used to that. I mean, I'm still one of those guys that drives down the street and says, Oh, look, look how cheap the gas is. <laughs> well, you got 10 gallon tanks these days and you're five cents less than a, <laughs> a gallon of gas. And you think somebody else is a rip off because it's 50 cents more is what the difference would be. 
we're just human. It's human nature. It, 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 it's something that can set you off. Yeah. You used to book a show based on radio airplay in your market. That's what you said in your book. How has the way radio changed play a part in the way that you book now? How can we break new rock artists if rock radio doesn't exist anymore? Well, it's a good question, and it's very difficult to answer. Um, Number one, I'm not booking so many club shows like I used to. So fortunately for me, it's good news, bad news. Fortunately for me, I don't have to really think about that so much. On the other end of it, though, with the older acts, here's what's really weird. So-called oldies radio stations, classic rock stations, whatever you want to call them, they, several years ago, kind of put a hit out on older artists. So here's here's me, who's been around for a long time, and the years are, are continuing to move on. I mean, think about it. Michael Jackson's an oldies act now. Mm-hmm. Not just because of Thriller, which is like 30 years old or whatever, more. Right. But, you know, the Jackson 5 were mid-60s. Sure. So this is truly an oldies act. And you've got oldie radio stations saying, no, we won't play that. But, you know, we will play we'll play his, uh, his, his, a couple of his hits. But, like, I went to promote Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They said, too old. I said, uh, you're a classic rock station. What do you mean, too old? When they twist it up even worse and won't play people on the type of format that should be supporting it. I mean, it's like they are going to play what they're going to play based on their research and their focus groups and their pocket people meter rating systems. It's all, I mean, it's somewhere between a joke and criminal as to how music does or doesn't reach you. There used to be watchdogs for them, believe it or not, uh, as I understand it, it was Bill Clinton who, under, who, who deregulated radio stations and made it possible for somebody to own more than one FM and more than one AM signal in a market. So in nearly any decent-sized market, much less the big ones, in every city USA, you got people owning clusters of seven radio stations. Mm-hmm. And they are blocking because of their research system and it's their business and it's their baby. Nobody can tell them what to play or not play. They have these truly stupid, ignorant ways of telling who's listening to what when that doesn't allow, and this is their mistake, it doesn't allow for them to go outside of that research and those consultants that all ought to be taken out and hung and let these people play the music from the past as well as from the present, because you need that for the evolution of this business. It's a mind blower when you think about it. There are reportedly 12 million people that are touched or work in the entertainment business, which includes the ushers and security and everybody in between, the radio stations, promoters, blah, 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 blah. That represents 20% of the economy. And the fact that these radio stations are able to dictate what you are and are not going to hear, it, it severely limits the amount of groups that we can promote as promoters in, in the halls that they need to play in. It severely limits the listeners from enjoying music that was created for them and somebody's getting in their way and they hijack the signal over money. So, I mean, it's this is something that's just been going on for a long time and it's it's as bad as it can be in that regard. I mean, many of these people, most of them that run and own these stations, nice people, friends of mine, and so forth. But, I mean, it's always been a tough business, but it's beyond tough now. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's just really counterproductive. It doesn't grow new artists. And to your point, you know, it really needs to happen for the evolution of music to continue. And, and it's, it's, yeah, it's super frustrating for somebody to do some sort of data crunch that tells me what I like and don't like because it's ridiculous. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredible because I, I've, I mean, like one of my favorites is Jeff Beck. Mm-hmm. You bring Jeff Beck to town, top dollar tickets, top dollar guarantee, sold out audience, and radio station won't touch them. Yep. Crazy. And it's Jeff Beck. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you've got the Yardbirds stuff. You've got the early Jeff Beck group stuff with Rod Stewart. And, and you've got his recent stuff. All of it is fantastic. And there's albums he's played on with God knows everybody, Santana, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, David Bowie, and they won't play him. And uh, he still sells out. And it's like you're depriving people of understanding what people want to hear. Yeah. If 2,500 people sell out a place at an average of $100 a head, and you're not playing that, you should be fired. Yeah. You're missing the boat yeah. on where your audience is at. The hardest thing in the world to do, one of the hardest things in, in the entertainment business is to get people, get their hands out of their pockets with their money in their hands, give it to you and make them drive somewhere and park in a terrible neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it's cold outside and it's rainy and you're going to do whatever you have to do to redeem that concert ticket to see your favorite star. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So I've taken up more than enough of your time. Where can people find uh, your book and get in contact with you if they want? I'm going to put all the links in the show notes. Well, the book is at DZPLive.com, which stands for Danny Zalisco Presents Live.com. So you go DZPLive.com. And right when it, when it opens up, there's a, a bar there where you can check out the book. We're doing them for thirty nine ninety five, dollars uh, It includes shipping. So we'd be happy to send you uh, anybody a book if they want to do that. And, and it's also available on Amazon, but I prefer the DZP thing because I make a little bit more money on it. It's a, it's a very expensive book to produce, and uh, it's 300-something pages. It's almost three fifty. There's about six to 700 pictures in there, and it's just not your normal, you know, 150-page read with a couple of photo sections in it. There's pictures all the way through it within the stories, which is the way I like to read stories. I hate having to finger around the book and try to find where that guy's picture is. I mean, who is he again? You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't like reading like that. So th- this is a book for, for somebody who, who wants to sit down and really – it's part history, it's part fun, it's a lot of music, and it's a lot of laughs, and uh, I really got a kick out of it. And, and if anybody wants to contact me, it's just info at com. Yeah, it's a great read. There's great photos, and uh, we will put the link in the show notes so that everybody can go and check it out. Danny, you've been awesome. you got some great stories. I wish you all the best. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Keep it up. Thank you. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.